Hello and welcome to another episode of What Comes Next, a show all about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Rob Kellner. I'm Amy Dickens. And I'm Kwaku Akonmensa. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of What Comes Next. We've got a really interesting and special guest for you this week. We're speaking to Tim Estes, co-CEO of an intriguing company called Digital Reasoning. Digital Reasoning uses AI to perform something called conduct surveillance. This is essentially where data about a person's online behaviours are analysed and then used to work out what that person is up to. Particularly, conduct surveillance looks for things like a person breaking company policy or doing something more serious like breaking the law. Yes, it does sound a little Orwellian. Don't worry, we'll make sure we cover that in the interview. But first, we should talk about the implementation, because digital reasoning is using this technology to great effect into wildly different fields. In the financial world, it's working with many of the world's top banks to detect illegal activity like fraud and collusion. While in the world of child protection, digital reasoning is collaborating with a number of organizations to spot and save victims of child sex trafficking. It's absolutely fascinating stuff and clearly there is so much to discuss and we had a fantastic interview with Tim. But before we get on to that interview, let's have a quick catch up with Amy and Kwaku. Uh, the lockdown in the UK at least is continuing to ease. So let's find out what normal things they've been up to in the last couple of weeks. Amy, after you. God, is this just because you're buying time to think of something normal you've done? No, I, I actually know, I know the exact moment. Do you? Do you? Um, I slightly illegally gave my friend a hug the other day, and it felt very, very dangerous, but very, very normal, and I really appreciated it. So, um, yeah, not, not, not telling people to make a habit of that, but it was just nice to give someone a hug. That's cool. That's really, really nice. So, the, so the, the kind of emotional value of a hug has gone up, if that's possible. I mean, me. I've cool. always been a hugger. I've always appreciated the emotional value of a hug. But when you've been starved of hugs, this sounds, sounds sad and pathetic, but when you've been starved of, starved of hugs for like four months, there's just something incredible about like another person just being, just giving them a squeeze. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. So we both had masks on. It was very safe, but. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was um, sitting down at a restaurant and uh, just having a, a latte brought to me and drinking that latte. I told mm. the waitress that me and her had shared a moment. It was, <laughs> it was so nice. It's like, oh, okay, wicked. Like me and my, uh, me and my partner sat down and we were like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll just have a smoothie and a coffee. And it was just awesome. Like we asked for something, we didn't have to make it, and then like five minutes later, it arrived and it was perfect. And then we were just sat there in the sun, enjoying the day. It was absolutely amazing. Rob, what about you? What what was what was your moment of normalness? My moment of normalness. Well, I um, uh, the weekend just gone. I went to a pub to watch uh, my beloved Arsenal lose to Spurs. So a combination <laughs> of Arsenal disappointment and overpriced beer i thought that was one of the most normal things i've done in a very long time um and it was beautiful i absolutely loved it it, it is interesting the things you things you miss guys it's fair to say that the the topic of today's show and the area of technology we're talking about is is absolutely massive yes it is it's a really really interesting um field of technology and as you'll hear from some of the the avenues that the conversation goes down it's certainly something that i feel quite strongly about um 
but yeah, a, a really interesting uh, conversation and some powerful technology that's being delivered here that has has been you know utilized for some really fantastic um, use cases um, and also has an interesting kind of question mark on its future. Tim, welcome to What Comes Next. Great to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, very excited to be here. You'll have a great show and uh, we look forward to, to getting into the dialogue. It's the closest thing we can do to get coffee these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right. Absolutely right. Very kind of you to say. And how are you doing? How's lockdown life treating you? Well, um, I am somebody who typically is a big traveler. Um, my my wife had been, uh, since we've had our two kids the last four years, uh, you know, I have gotten a lot of those, uh, when is it going to slow down? Uh, and this has been a great case of saying, be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Uh, <laughs> and, and so from my standpoint, this is the longest period I've not been on a plane in over a decade. Wow. Um, wow. And probably the longest time I've been home that I can think of that I can remember. So on one level, I feel like it's resetting from, I did four around the world trips roughly last year. Um, and, uh, and you know, probably, I don't know. 20 plus uh overseas trips of some kind. So uh, so yeah, it's a very different thing and it's 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 rebalancing the the necessity of of what you think you need to do um and and while I miss the interactions um I, I definitely think that it's going to find a different work home balance work home life balance uh and maybe it draws us closer to people that you know we had kind of put on the back burner for our ambitions or because we thought we had to do something else. So maybe that's going to be a good thing. Um, and, and I think that there's, there's some silver lining in that in terms of your personal relationships and your family. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thought. It's certainly something that's really needed in this time to think about actually what are the what are some of the potential kind of positive outcomes of this of this time of kind of great upheaval and disruption. So digital reasoning, you've been traveling the world talking about what is clearly some some absolutely fascinating work in the field of monitoring human communication and then detecting illegal or socially damaging activities. So could you just give us a quick kind of run through of what digital reasoning is and what technology you've built? Sure. So digital reasoning um, started in kind of the post 9-11 world to look at human language and try to find, uh, you know, real risks uh, in data, uh, particularly in the post 9-11 kind of counterterrorism area. And the idea was that, you know, when 9-11 happened, there was a lot of investigations and people that said that, you know, we had data, we had evidence that could have been prevented. Whether that's legitimate or not, I think is a debate that will go on for generations. Uh, it's always easy after something terrible happens to go find the pieces of the puzzle. It's almost impossible to do that proactively. But the, there was a consensus that we could do more and that you could not use humans to listen and understand all this data. So digital reasoning emerged with a lot of a government investment uh, on that problem. There was a lot spent and many things didn't work. And we were one of the things that, that mostly worked. Um, and then we went into the banking space. And, and as you described, we started using similar technology after the financial crisis, uh, really where the fines started to come out, enforcing you know, what happened in the financial crisis um, you know, between 2011 and 2015. Uh, as well as things that you saw in the UK, like the LIBOR rate fixing and FX uh, manipulation of the markets, um, it became important to restore integrity to banking. And there was a set of people inside the banks that said, we have got to have something better than a big list of bad keywords that we have to review the emails on. Like we've got to be able to use technology that's superior to go teach a machine or, or uh, you know, teach a system how to find collusion, how to find secrecy how to find people that are trying to trade on inside information. 
And, and digital reasoning was proud to be one of the first companies, if not the first to do that with large banks at scale. And, and now we're in use by nearly a majority of the top banks in the world. I think four of the top five banks in the UK use us today. Uh, the fifth one we hope to get soon. <laughs> so uh, it's a market that we've uh, we've done a lot of work in, uh, a lot of key American banks, uh, Singapore, Asia, Australia. Um, so we, we've done that, uh, and this is called conduct surveillance. So this is basically where you're looking at chats and emails, and we're actually looking at voice calls now, where you're looking at people that um, have to be monitored because the FCA and FINRA and the OCC uh, and others in the U.S., are all saying that here are our regulations and rules. You have to prevent this kind of behavior. You have to shape the culture of your organization. And digital reasoning uh, is at the, the forefront of that um, and is working closely, really partnering and co-developing with banks uh, how to do that. In fact, six of our largest shareholders are actually banks that have invested in the company. Um, some names you would know, whether it's Goldman Sachs or Barclays or BNP Paribas, uh, and then three others. So um, NASDAQ is an investor in the company. They're obviously known as, a, as you know, a key provider of markets as well as market technology and surveillance technologies to ensure those markets are ethical. Um, so so we, we definitely have uh, had a second wave kind of post our government mission in that space. Um, and then we've used it in healthcare uh, and some other areas. So, so long story short is uh, you know, we've, we've used the use case in many areas or technology for different use cases in different areas. But it's always about the same problem. What's a rare but valuable thing that a human, if they had enough time, could read or listen to and say, yeah, that I want to pay attention to. That's worth my attention. How do you teach a machine to do that? How do you train it to do that? How do you do that if it's a rare event? You know, Let's say it's a few hundred out of 100 million to a billion events. So you know, that number of the numerator divided by the denominator is, is so close to zero. It's called the problem of a highly imbalanced problem, a highly imbalanced data set. Mm. And digital reasoning has figured out clever ways to do that. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with a little bit less of the algorithms um, of how you do it. But it's really how do you use AI to help a human teach the AI? We, we call this machine education. So how do you build the curriculums that you need to do to make a machine pick up certain kinds of expertise? Uh, and that's really, uh, I think, a big area the last four or five years for us. Um, we, were, we were one of the first people that could make sense of that data at scale. And then it took us, uh, so called the first 10 plus years of the company, we were very unique uh, in making sense of that kind of data at scale, you know, who was talking to whom and what and when and about you know, which topics we could do that kind of stuff. Um, but when you want to find something really subtle, like a, a behavior, an intention, that was very hard. And it took us several years working with the banks uh, and working on other use cases like child sex trafficking and separating out minors uh, who were being essentially forced into writing ads by their pimps. Uh, it's just horrible stuff. Uh, and, and detecting those versus people that are essentially in the sex worker trade, uh, that while you know that may not be condoned either, it's a very different thing than a child being forced into sex slavery, right? We can, we can all agree that's a, one of those horrible evils in the face of the earth. So, um, so we, we've dealt with different, very different use cases, but they're all the same kind of problem, which is we had to make an AI that could be educated to find something subtle in a sea of information. And that's something that's increasingly needed now uh, because we have an overwhelming amount of data and very limited human attention. And some of these problems have amazing consequences uh, if, if you, don't, you don't deal with them. And so we're trying to you know, aid that fight. 
It's fantastic. And I guess just to, you know, maybe distill this, because uh, what we're talking about here is an AI that, like you say, can just examine huge amounts of information. Let's let's take, uh, you know, emails, for example. So it can examine a huge volume of emails and spots very specific instances or spot evidence of things like collusion, like you said. Yeah, that's right. And so it's, it's basically firing off uh, these indicators of these activities between multiple people. Um, and it's mostly what they're saying. It's also, you know, whom they're saying it to and how they're interacting. So, um, but, but the thing that's most novel in what we do is this ability to, uh, I mean, if I, was, if I was looking at an area that's similar, like manipulating a market, uh, you had people at some of the leading banks that they actually were smartest to know how the legacy sort of systems worked that were trying to monitor for bad behavior. So they would do things like um, uh, talk about putting in a fix, you know, i.e. to create a price on something that was incorrect and disadvantaged the client and essentially made them you know, ill-gotten gains. And instead of putting in the word fix FIX, they would put in F1X. Because the, the, the systems were so dumb, they didn't know that a simple change of a character was the same thing. It, it kind of sounds to me like it's like next level criminal profiling, where you're taking like individual traits that maybe don't mean something just individually, but together the, the artificial intelligence is able to say, okay, well, this pattern and the way that this is being used looks like maybe somebody's trying to commit fraud or maybe somebody's trafficking a child or some other crime is being committed. Yeah. And so what, what we, I mean, there is an element of it, which is trying to get into um, a behavioral loop. Mm-hmm. So I can give you kind of the broad sketches of it. It's kind of interesting. You might, you might find it interesting, which is that if you think about the kinds of things that make people act, there's actually sort of a sequence that plays out. Most people uh, come into a situation with a kind of predisposition. Okay, so for instance, if you're in a bank and you didn't get the bonus you thought you deserved for your work for a variety of reasons, you might coming into come into a situation where you're disgruntled because yeah. of essentially a compensation issue. That might lead you a state of mind. So that predisposition might lead you to a state of mind where you're open to doing things that kind of skirt the rules because you think you're entitled to it. Mm. And so what you would see is people canvassing for opportunities and information using secrecy language Mm. and maybe reaching out to other individuals to see who might collaborate on something and blurring the lines of whether it's really illegal or unethical or not. And then at some point, there's actually language that sort of signals potentially uh, that a decision has been made. Mm. And then what happens after that is people at that point, because it was all hypothetical until then, um, they start assembling a plan, like what they have to do. Now, not a very sophisticated actor is not going to assemble a plan in a channel that's monitored. So they're, they're going to go to WhatsApp or WeChat and do it on the background. They're not going to do it in the email system of a large bank. An idiot will, <laughs> but, 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 but these people are very smart and they make a lot of money. So, uh, so occasionally that might happen. As one of our clients once said when I said, uh, they don't really say this, do you? And, he's, and, and the person replied, Tim, we have to catch the idiots first. <laughs> and uh, and so and so there so that's that's still true, but we we assume we're dealing with a much more sophisticated actor, and we think the planning stage is something where you're going to get very limited signal, like you're going to get sort of odd questions popping up, and there'll be this incompleteness. So it's almost the breadcrumbs without a complete trail that is assigned something as a foot, 
And then when the action actually happens, that's normally not going to happen like in a communication. So mm. unstructured data and language is all pre-action. And then the action might be seen in a trade surveillance system, like what NASDAQ does. They're one of the market leaders in that area. And so you might alert there, but without the context of what happened before, you know, this alert might be buried, you know, in a, in a sea of other things that are really false positives. Uh, and then this is one of the more interesting ones. And we saw this actually with the LIBOR scandal. Some people, um, after they get, 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 get away with it, they react in one of two ways. They'll boast about it. I mean, they literally will say things like, hey, we got away with that one. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you actually, there are instances that I think FDA discovered uh, after this stuff. And then you have people that also start speaking in secrecy language after the event because they're worried about the cover up. Like, did they screw up something? Did they actually leave any trail? So I've given you like a sequence. You can almost visualize this sort of waterfall of, of yeah. um, So we're detecting things in that pre-planned phase and we're detecting some things after the event. And we're doing it from a, a kind of data that machines until recently really couldn't make any sense of. It's, it's really interesting because human behavior is one of the, I, I find it so fascinating because it's entirely predictable, but one of the things that we have virtually no power to kind of fake, I guess. Um, yep. So yeah, I, 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 it's fascinating that you've developed a technology that is able to interpret behavior rather than direct cues, like, like the example you gave about uh, the word fix. So it, it's actually looking at the way somebody is interacting in general, rather than a specific thing they said. I find that really fascinating. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, potentially, like perhaps using the example of the child sex trafficking that you were working on, if mm -hmm. you could give us some examples of the kinds of behaviors that would uh, pop up as like really suspicious or really... Uh, you know, like a red flag in your system. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, for a long time and even now, I, I want to be mindful that, um, you know, we, we don't get too far into call it the special clues because we don't want the bad guys to get away with no, it. Right? Of course not. So, and that is not my intention. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I just, so if I, if I sometimes sound a little less specific than you think I might be, just realize the intention is that these are capabilities that uh, the, the, the party that now is driving this and always has been thorn. So Ashton Kutcher's charity. Uh, the system's called Spotlight, and we built it, you know, in partnership with them for many years. And, and they're now driving, you know, this system uh, that we had built up, uh, and it, it's it's under it's massively used across the U.S. and Canada and other places around the world, um, and uh, has probably led to ten thousand plus um, minors being identified or rescued from sex Fantastic. trafficking. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, and so, so those are the stakes, right? So that's my preface. Uh, and with that, with that in mind, um, the kind of things you would see is, um, you know, there are there is, um, I'll give you two kinds of language, which is interesting. There's language around immaturity, which is, you know, where someone, I guess the way to say it is if you were a person reading it, you'd say, wow, that person sounds kind of young. Mm. Um, and, uh, and one thing that the, the Thorn Foundation, that this, this nonprofit that really like, deserves credit for all of this, we, we, in some ways were just a partner helping build it. Um, I mean, it was all our tech, but it was, you know, their vision of it. And we just, when they didn't have any tech team, we were involved in getting them there. Uh, and so what, what we saw is that, uh, what they saw was they had interviewed a bunch of survivors of sex trafficking. And, and one of the most disgusting things I'd ever heard, uh, frankly, in my adult life was that the survivors they had, the children they had interviewed, um, 
a vast number of them, I can't remember if it was 50% or two thirds of them, they were actually coached by their, their, you know, their controller or their pimp to write the ad themselves in their own language mm. because they were trying right. to attract people that wanted underage children for sex work. Like it's one of the most Sorry, horrendous things I've, I've ever heard. And it's not speculative. Like this was police officers validating this. And so yeah. we worked between the, te- the team for a long time to do something that was very hard, which is how can you teach a system what the difference is between the immature language and not so because they're because they're almost they're all going to lie about their age yeah no one's going to post an ad saying i'm 14 or i'm 13 and they're all going to be magically 18 to 22 mm. and uh and and so what you have to do is cut between that false information to find underneath the telltale signs that this is probably someone who's underage now in the last uh, couple of years uh, imagery analysis has has become a big part of that as well where you have it available uh, and the Thorn team, you know, independent of digital reasoning and partnership has done tremendous work there. And Microsoft's helped them as well. So this is really a team effort. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so now being able to use all those things, it, it's even better. But when it was an earlier system, you know, using the language was a very key part of it. This reminds me of, um, I guess, a similar field and maybe some, somewhere you might, uh, you know, find some business or might might uh, be able to do some interesting work. Uh, and Wired reported on this story, and I'll put, an, I'll put a link to the article in the show notes, which is about how um, pedophiles use YouTube videos to direct other pedophiles to look at certain footage. And they use a secret code in the comment section. And basically, YouTube had, uh, and I, I guess, still struggles with the idea, has a problem and still struggles with the problem of not being able to identify and spot these nefarious patterns of behavior and block people mm-hmm. and, and punish people and redirect them to the authorities, I guess, in certain cases. And it seems like there's some both interesting overlap there and also potentially another use case for this technology. I'd like to know a bit more about the your, your sort of secret recipe for the technology, um, because obviously this is, this is, it strikes me a, a matter of accuracy, right? This is how, um, how well can you detect these patterns of behavior uh, and I presume to do that, it's about the it's about the sophistication and the elegance of the of the algorithmic mathematics that underpin the AI. So I was wondering, mm-hmm. what do you attribute the accuracy and the efficacy of your platform to? So I think that the the there are two or three things that uh, I think are kind of emerging consensus areas of AI uh, in terms of the ch- so you had of course. A, a major disruption, positive disruption in AI that played out between really about 2012 and 2015. It used to be that AI, uh, to be taught, required a human intervention step called feature engineering, where you took a data set and you had to break it into the little pieces and parts. Like this is a noun phrase, this is the, the, the token mm. or the word inside the noun phrase. So think of it as putting a ton of human labor into the training process to make an AI that, uh, work that was very brittle you know it had to be finely tuned and so as a result when you took a ai system and you applied it to a very different business case uh, it couldn't be retaught quickly or easily and uh with what happened uh really from i mean the truth is some of this work goes back to the late 90s early 2000s and it just basically got had a breakthrough mostly because of data sets and to some degree algorithmically in the 2012 to 2015 time horizon um, what happened was the um, the new algorithms in these new data sets started to have massive, massive quality breakthroughs on pattern recognition 
this is what allowed you know Siri to take a quantum leap in speech to text and Google Assistant. Where you might remember when they early de- they debuted this stuff early, you know, it was almost laughable the kind of of text right. you get talking to your phone. And then within a few years, it started to be pretty impressive. I mean, you can go into Google Maps now, press the speech button, rattle off an address, and it nails it most of the time, right? Hmm. And and that's a remarkable change uh, if you think about all the diversity of addresses. Um, so what happened though was that this was viewed as you know a massive sea change in AI, and there was a lot of of optimism that it, it just kind of that the yields, the improvements of the first three to five years of this advancement would just keep paying off at the same level. And I think what's happened now in the last two years is we hit a plateau. And for the most part, these algorithms and their yields are not a lot better in terms of the real efficacy uh, than they were two or three years ago. The processing power is more, uh, and their new architectures. Um, the real area where it advanced in the last 24 months is in the area of text and natural language. Mm. So I would say that the vision vision was the first area to advance, speech came after, and then text started to, to show progress. However, in all of these cases, the real barrier was how do you build the right training set, the right data set um, to teach a machine a expert task, like a real task mm-hmm. that's, that's not general but is more specific. So, for instance, having a system be able to transcribe uh, you know, an English a phone call in English with your, your best friend, it, it's not as hard a task uh, if you're talking about general life events. Because the people that have the data, like Google and others, potentially have plenty of examples for it to memorize so many situations. However, if you're recording a phone call of a foreign exchange trader and you're trying to interpret what they're saying and doing, the data to make that transcript good is not readily available. Um, So the error rates in that domain-specific area might be dramatically higher than the generic ones. So looking at that specifically, like in the text area, um, what you might see is that um, the uh, you might see the following where um, the ability to pull out uh, various kinds of genes or you know cancer uh, words and language might be not that hard to do. But the judgment across a pathology report that this is a certain kind of cancer based on what the the doctor said, if it's implicit or it's not fully explicit and the severity of it, like that's a judgment that takes a lot of very specific data that is in a nurse's brain uh, or in, you know, a a hospital worker's brain that has not been ever assembled to teach a machine. Mm -hmm. So it's actually that machine education area that I think is the biggest bottleneck today of taking what AI can do and making it very valuable. So when you ask about what our secret sauce is, we were very early in making a lot of these larger AI algorithms work and work at scale, but they work in a general way. And when you get into what a business needs or a a vertical domain, then you have a different problem, which is you have to transfer expertise and task expertise from a person to the machine. And that requires a curriculum, almost like you're educating someone in a college course. Mm. And and here's one of the things, this is where kind of, I want to be a contrarian one of the most influential uh, publications in the AI space in the last 20 years was a publication put out by the head of research at Google, a gentleman named Peter Norvig. 
And Norvig, you know, literally wrote the book on AI. He and um, so uh, basically uh, Stuart Russell and Peter Norvig, the Russell Norvig uh, 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 textbook, I think that's right, uh, is like the leading AI. I wouldn't say 101, maybe it is the 101 textbook, but it's normally like a third year uh, undergrad type class. Like it's the leading textbook on the space. Norvig wrote a piece years ago called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Data. And the thesis was that um, the algorithms eventually would not be that differentiated, <clears throat> meaning you could try different approaches, different architectures, but with enough compute, it wouldn't matter. You really just need more data to throw at the, at the algorithms, and we would see big change. So what that did is it made people go run after getting tons of data and get a lot of compute and then making systems that were much smarter because they had more data and more compute to, to work on. Here's the challenge. And there's a, there's a – in philosophy, which is my background, we have what we call counterfactuals. It actually led to a bias that's been very counterproductive to making expertise be transferred to AI. Here's why. Um, what you like when you send someone to college, you actually don't judge their intelligence by how many years they stayed in college to learn something. It's not the amount of content they've consumed. It's actually how fast they can execute a task accurately on the least amount of coaching. Someone who blows through and can can finish, you know, a GMAT uh, or you know a, a major, uh, you know, progress to graduate school in two and a half years. In school, we generally view as a smarter than someone who stays seven years and can't do that, hmm. even though the latter person has probably been exposed to 10 times the content. So intelligence is actually the efficient use of minimum curriculum to make a good judgment. So because of how the web and the biases of the web and the openness of it, we actually biased our AI efforts across the community the wrong way for over a decade. And now I think we're trying to unravel that and say, you know what, we got to deal with the long tail of all this expertise to really provide value back to humans. And to do that requires a fundamentally new technology uh, that's focused on how you quickly educate the machine with the least amount of human energy and, and time. I, I know that was like a long kind of multi-paragraph piece, but, but I think that actually is the secret sauce of digital raising now is we've made enormous investments in that because it's been necessary for our customers. So obviously, you know, you, you've described that you're working – on the one hand, to look for um, fraud um, from FX traders right the way through mm -hmm. to um, the patterns of um, sex traffickers. Are there any patterns mm -hmm. that you're um, identifying in one area that actually there are certain hallmarks of that that present themselves time and again in different types of nefarious activity in different sectors? Absolutely. Uh, I, so what's interesting is this. You have a sea of regulations uh, in the financial services space, right, from the various regulators, legislation, other things. We have a certain set of, of behavioral models, you know, under 100 of them, um, you know, more in the dozens. Even a few of those end up, when used in combination, uh, are great indicators of regulatory violations. Huh, okay. So, so think of it as like there are common Lego blocks of behaviors that generally in combination are bad. Um, so for instance, uh, secrecy plus business language plus change of venue plus disgruntled language is rarely a combination of a good thing. Mm. 
Like it's not now there are exceptions, but think of it as like a Venn diagram of every model covers a space of intention. And as you stack those, those circles on what hits in the center gets to be so risk weighted toward a problem Mm. that uh, it's, it, it is generally worth exploring. And, And so, you know, secrecy language can be appropriate in certain contexts. So it's not one, one building block on its own. But, you know, secrecy plus disgruntled itself is not great. Like I'll give you another example. Um, disgruntled plus uh, flight risk, i.e. someone talking about leaving a firm or somebody that uh, other people are talking about as if they're going to leave uh, is a decent indicator that that person might take data with them and to try to exfiltrate it from the organization. Huh. Can I, can I ask what happens um, s- sort of once this – this this pattern has been spotted. Once this information is available, how, like, what's the next step? How how do people get the right people get notified? How does that kind of play into the user of this technology? So, in, in the compliance area, it's literally a set of alerts uh, mm. that come up to certain analysts that are approved, approved to see those alerts. And then, if there is an issue that that survives that initial review, it's escalated, and the escalation tends to lead to a minor investigation or a major one uh, and eventually some level of, of remediation if there's really a problem. You know, does someone really uh, do something wrong here uh, or should they just have a, you know, be warned that, no, you can't do that. That's, this is a problem having a sit down. So that's more the compliance side. It, it's well understood. There's a lot of ways that, that those issues are managed. Uh, I think there are other use cases that are really similar to that when monitoring customer complaints, you know, looking for, sexual harassment or cultural uh, kind of issues in the workplace mm-hmm. where I don't think you would alert on it the same way. I mean, maybe a severe case you would. Uh, so don't take that the wrong way. It's very important. It's just that um, when you look at HR, they, they probably want to see where are the risks at. Almost mm-hmm. like what's a heat map of my organization? Where do I need to go in and have some conversations, some education? If it's a severe mm-hmm. issue of like, you know, racial discrimination or something else, you probably want to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you definitely want to intervene. But but there's a level which is awareness, or we call ambient intelligence, and there's a level of actioning. Actioning tends to be something where you're going to see that in compliance, uh, and and I think you you would action only some things in HR in a very limited way. Most of the time, the awareness uh, side of it or the ambient intelligence side is something where you just want to know that you know that you have a problem of customer complaints spiking in this area. Maybe it's a new process you put in and it's not working. Or maybe there's a, a badly trained group here and the customers are reacting poorly to it. You need to go in and inter- intervene. Uh, but that's not the kind of thing I think where you would escalate every message a customer you know, says. You would just say that you know, this, this, this is red over here, this is amber, and this is green. It sounds like the, there's kind of um, there's a scale there because there's the stuff that's happening that's definitely like it's illegal. It's um, a huge problem. I mean, obviously, child sex trafficking is a huge problem and very much illegal. And mm-hmm. uh, corporate fraud is going to be another one. But then there's also an area there for um, let's say it's like an office place bullying situation right. where the the language that the that the AI is identifying might have it sound like bullying. But if you can look at the behavior in the context, you can see, well, actually, these two people have a relationship where they kind of poke fun at each other quite a lot. So it's maybe not bullying, but it might be worth having a chat to someone just to find out if there's like if there's something going on there. Is, is that kind of a correct assumption? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, and so I okay. think that the, the idea would be that, I mean, it's a lot more complicated in those situations because sure, yeah. someone, someone might be, you know, someone may be pushing back on bullying and being, you know, very almost violent in their language. But for all you know, they've experienced something that, you know, yeah, that isn't on course. the data channel. I mean, think, think about think about a woman who has a boss who's been very clever about hiding their behavior and they've been doing it all face to face for weeks or months or even years. And they yeah. finally are fed up and the person is trying to construct a case that they're a bad worker and other things. And the truth behind the situation is that they've had enough. And, and I think that that's a situation where we wouldn't want our system ever being a trigger of the wrong action. So right. all you want to yeah. do is surface the data and make sure that the appropriate people can dig into it. So I think that the, the corporations have both a desire and a duty to get awareness and to act. Um, but that's not an area where the, the, the technology is there to make a judgment. It's there to surface for review. It's beyond the trust in our AIs today to make those kind of judgments. So, um, Tim, I, I'm really interested um, to kind of go into a little bit of detail about the surveillance aspect of this. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, it seems like there's um, an incredible amount of data that's being, um, that's being hoovered up um, by your system. Um, and you've you've talked about the uh, some of the contexts in which that's used. How how do you communicate the the um, the use of this system to the employees of the companies that you work with? Is it something that perhaps is in their contracts when they sign up to work for these companies? Like how how aware are they that their um, their interactions are being analyzed in this manner? Sure, uh, I mean in the banking space, everybody knows it. I mean, it's just part of the job, um, and and the truth is, on the conduct side, that's where we that's where we play right now. So we aren't really taking this out broader than financial services right now. Um, I believe that as we do that in the future, uh, it will be aligned more toward um, what we call helpful awareness, uh, okay. and and I think that you're not going to see, for instance, direct individual activity be alerted on in the system. So. I think there's a very fine line between uh, being able to satisfy regulators in the financial services industry and then having useful intelligence to shape better companies that isn't really individual oriented, but in more trending information. Right. Okay. So, and so right now it's not clear that outside of financial services that you'd have a lot of adoption of this. Mm. Now, post COVID with all the, uh, the work from home, you may actually have people that want better idea of, you know, are people working, what's hanging them up? Uh, are there issues and frustrations emerging? And given the fact you can't talk to them in a normal way, uh, you're always doing it remote, that data becomes very valuable. So there probably is a post-COVID version of this that gets early, gets more adoption. But I always think it's going to – I think we shouldn't take the lessons of what works in banking in terms mm. of how they deal with you know alerts and compliance and just assume other industries would pick it up. I, I don't think that would happen. I think instead it's more like the same behaviors – uh, should be understood, but more like, you know, you have um, uh, satisfaction levels, you have uh, effectiveness levels, um, and, and they're not sort of the individual activities. Uh, the only exception, I think, is probably the more egregious areas, which is around, you know, harassment, whether it's racial, sure. or whether it's sexual, or otherwise. I think there is an appetite to put more systems in place for that. But it's going to take, I think, a year or two of collaborative co-development with major companies to do that the right way. 
Sure. It's interesting. I mean, it, it seems like there's, you know, a, a potential evolution here into those um, other other sectors um, outside of banking. Um, but the, the focus that you think that that would take is around um, threat detection um, or, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so some kind of um, uh, issues that are being identified in the workplace. But actually, couldn't it be the case that you know, very soon, if you have a powerful, um, if you have a powerful algorithm that can identify and make in- inferences about human behavior, that's actually useful for a whole number of things within an organization that don't fall into the category of illegal activity or, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of positives. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's right. And so I, I think there's a lot of positives in this that uh, I think you focus on the negatives because we're in an environment right now. Mm. where uh, people are only doing the essentials on this stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I believe there's a lot of positives, but we're just, we're just, we've gone from an age of optimism, maybe a little bit of jadedness in terms of overpromising and AI. And we're now in an, we're now in an evil age. I, I have no word for it. You can't look at the suffering in the world right now and the changes, whether it's in health or livelihoods. Um, and I don't believe it's, it's not a time for blithe optimism. It's a time for solidarity and a time for using the energy of optimism to find a way through the darkness. This is a really, really interesting perspective. And I I think I can definitely um, see the temptation to kind of use the full force of technology to the full force of technology to to, um, scrutinize human behavior when, as you say, there is so much information on how much ugly human behavior there is in the world. The trick here is to do that without uh, throwing everybody and every single human interaction under the bus. Because I believe that, you know, mm-hmm. the privacy issues that um, that arise when we're talking about um, surveillance, some of these things feel like bigger um, battles to, to, to win than the... Um, uh, than the than the problems that we're trying to solve here potentially, and I and I'm certainly not talking about that when it comes to things like um, sex trafficking and you know major financial fraud. But I think it's very um, easy to start plotting a line to where these kinds of surveillance technologies could lead. You know, yeah. how much time are you spending at your screen? What words are you allowed to use when you're uh, in the workplace? Um, how much positive sentiment is being delivered um, amongst your your colleagues? Suddenly, we're getting into the kind of almost into the free speech. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, well. we're 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 on the Orwellian slope. You know, I right, mean, it's just, right. it's, it's, it, I think that's and, and this is one of the tragedies is that I think we were close before COVID of coming to a society consensus that would put for pretty big constraints on large data aggregators. Uh-huh. So GDPR, you know, some of the, the protections in California that have been passed, uh, a, a broad federal dialogue in the U.S. on it. Um, and then, of course, a lot of suspicion of the way surveillance and privacy was almost non-existent uh, in China and how those technology companies were using that kind of data. Mm. So COVID has reset those bars again uh, out of expediency. Uh, and, and you could say some necessity, but uh, I don't know yet that that's that's actually true. The real problem was we didn't have the data from, frankly, I mean, I mean, whether it was from China or other points, we either didn't have it because we didn't have it intentionally, or we didn't have it because we didn't have the the metrics in place. But we didn't know how fast it would spread. We didn't know how fast it had already spread. I mean, we're seeing cases come out in France now in December, 
And so there are a lot of data points that we didn't have. Uh, and so this, on the one hand, it points to we underinvested in technology to detect certain things, especially after H1N1 and SARS, right? So we, we, we didn't move. This is where Bill, Bill Gates says, and I think made a very good point. We didn't move to be ready. We just sort of took it for granted, and there's a big consequence for that. On the other hand, uh, the overreaction is that as we get data, it is vitally important that we tune policy to it as soon as possible because the decisions at this scale have – they all have consequences. There is no free lunch in it, and uh, and I think that's the part I'm kind of beating the drum on here, and I, I think that, that was, I was egged on into this because I can see the same thing on the privacy side. So for instance, I'll give you an example. This comes from my you know, my early background when I was younger in the counterterrorism area. Um, I was a person, and if you go back and look at YouTube and some things I said at O'Reilly conferences in 2012, 2013, I was one of those people that very, very uh, passionately and with with full conviction defended the government surveillance programs and rights um, on the counterterrorism side. Because I knew the personal people who had invented some of the technologies and who were running these things. And the people that I knew and worked with, they understood if they ever used those powers to surveil like a U.S. citizen for political reasons uh, and use that illicitly, it was a career-ending situation and probably going to jail. Like they were statutory protections. And back then I would say that you know you should have more distrust of that system or more trust in that system than you do a Google because Google doesn't have any penalties for abuse for the most part. They're mostly above that kind of abuse. So let's solve the Silicon Valley data aggregation abuse before we worry about shutting down a key terrorism system, right? So that would have been my viewpoint. I am stunned by what has been revealed, even in the last few months, of how some of those surveillance systems were totally abused for political reasons. And there is no debate about it. Like they're just like that's where the FISA court is involved in others. It's shaken my belief in the government's ability to handle that right. And now I feel like I'm, I'm coming back and saying, you know what? I was naive. So in the same idea here, just being fully transparent, um, I think that um, I don't want – I would not like to see a repeat of that where we give uh, carte blanche to companies or government under the, the get-out-of-jail-free card of it's for public health. right? So, there's, so there has to be some right. balance here. And so that's where I'm coming from. I'm coming from someone who you know, was fighting a mission trying to prevent the next 9-11 with a lot of other well-intentioned people. And I believe those systems were left in place for a while, and whoever, whoever, whatever, it's undeniable now that some of those systems were abused for political reasons, and and that's that should never happen. And unfortunately, we'll lose some of the capability uh, because the trust is lost. And I think that that we can preempt some of that in the health side here by just making the right ground rules. I I, um, oh, I, I think that might be a bit too optimistic. I think that once, um, like you, like you said before, you know, once once powers are given um, to surveil a population in a certain manner, they are virtually never um, rescinded um, yep. in any way, shape, or form. So I worry that I, it feels like we're we're kind of singing from the same hymn sheet, but maybe with a, a slightly different um, uh, end result that we come to from it. So. To, to me, that suggests that any kind of um, surveillance technology should be really, really, really heavily scrutinized um, mm -hmm. as it moves from sector to sector as well. Because one thing that becomes normality in one sector quickly becomes normality in another. Mm -hmm. We see this, you know, we, we see this across the board. 
with you're absolutely right this um with the with the current public um healthcare crisis sorry with the the pandemic what you're looking at is very much akin to um uh, the the counterterrorism after uh, 9/11 uh, analogy that you gave it's the shock doctrine once um people are once people are in a in a state of shock or in a state of fear or anger they're going to be far more willing to um to bring more of these technologies into their lives um whether i i think it's very unlikely that we can <laughs> that we can trust either governments or corporations mm -hmm. to use those technologies responsibly um what we actually see is the um you know <laughs> the use of the technologies are immediately shown to be you know potentially for 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 positive um uh, influence whether it be on public health or public safety but then yeah. quickly the um periphery um uses of those systems are expanded and they're expanded right. under the umbrella under the guise of those same um things like public health and public safety. The thing that's particularly um, interesting when it comes to uh, technologies like the one that um, you're developing, Tim, is that we're talking about um, semantics as well as the identification of actual activities. So rather than, um, rather than looking for a specific um, uh, identifier, we're looking for anything that might point us in the direction of that identifier. And that's something that does concern me slightly. So we're hoovering up a vast amount of information in order to point um, our technology uh, in the right direction of investigation. And I wonder, right. what, I wonder how that will um, how that will develop in our society as it stands. Uh, yeah, no. It's just, first of all, I 100% agree with what you're bringing up. This is exactly where I was trying to to land us in that. Um, it's a series of unintended consequences coming. You don't have to, you like, I don't want to go into to disbelieving people's intent or their, you know, call it their good nature in it. Mm. I just think there is this inevitable slope that's becomes very tempting. And I believe there's a huge issue of unintended consequences. And I think that those are, those are the things that we're, we're in the thick of a conversation around. So I, I just want to say hundred percent agree with what you laid out there. And, um, and it's very aligned to what I'm trying to get to. Mm. Let me tilt this a little bit because I feel like I'm going into a place that feels a little more neg negative and critical. And that's not really, I, I don't want to have the, the tint of this be too far to that. Sure. Um, I want to, I want to brag on somebody that I think has part of the answer. They may not have all the answer, but they have part of the answer. Um, I used to have a, a great team member in digital reasoning and, and our company has a bunch of good people and we, we, we call ourselves reasoners. So that's kind of our, uh, uh, our group and our company culture and ethos is reasoners. Okay. And one of my best reasoners, uh, he left us a few years ago because he, he had a passion and he went to pursue a PhD at Oxford uh, in one of the best deep learning professors or with one of the best deep learning professors in the world. Uh, a couple of years ago, he started building a project called Open Mind, which you may or may not know of. Mm, yeah. and, and, and this project is probably the leading open source project to do distributed machine learning on encrypted and anonymized data. It essentially is an infrastructure to not require data to be put in one place to protect it safely, keep it private, and learn from it. It is a remarkable piece of technology. It has led to thousands of people in GitHub working on it, committing to it, and it's matured dramatically in the last 18 to 24 months. Whether OpenMind is the answer to this or it is just a directional way to go, I want us to be thoughtful enough that 
you can have these companies and these governments get the insights they need, I believe, in a way that is still safe. I believe we need to be thoughtful enough about the mechanisms and the protections they have to put in place to be given those rights. Uh, and something like Open Mind or a technology like it could be part of that answer. So I believe that that you know, looking on a positive, technology got us into some of this mess of human uh, potential and abuse, right? Um, but there is a degree to which technology could get us out of this mess. And, and I, I think that there's potentially a way that you could enforce certain ways you collect and aggregate and use data uh, while opening up and limiting liability on how the data is used if those protections are met. Mm, fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Well, a big thank you to Tim for coming on the show. Uh, we also have some breaking news from Digital Reasoning to share. Announced yesterday morning, that's the 15th of July, Digital Reasoning is teaming up with Google Cloud in what they're calling a global strategic partnership. Uh, this will see Digital Reasoning's conduct surveillance capabilities that we talked about during the interview made available as a managed service on Google Cloud. So exciting stuff for the company, exciting news, and exciting technology. So Amy, quick, let's dig into this. First of all, Amy, it's fair to say that what they've built is an incredibly powerful piece of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I feel very excited about what this technology can do. I've always been really interested in human behavior. It's, I actually, I did a course on it at uni on like forensic behavior because I, I really enjoy learning about the patterns Maybe it's a little bit dark, but particularly patterns of kind of criminals and the way their minds work and the way um, they use language uh, or I don't know, just kind of they have a very different way of thinking depending on their particular, uh, I guess, level of crime. And what I'm particularly fascinated in is uh, this technology being able to understand behavior rather than just language. I thought that was really fascinating that it doesn't just look at a word or a set of words and think like, this is a red flag, this isn't. It's now at the point where it can understand, like, not, maybe not sarcasm is not right, but it, it can understand like the intention behind language, which that's a whole other layer. That's like one step closer to the human brain. And that's just fascinating to me. And I think that it's interesting. There's a couple of points that Tim mentioned, the sort of formula for dis discovering a, a person's intention so you had um mm -hmm. you know kind of disgruntled email versus kind of you know emailing at this time and so on and just the set of things that it would consider to get somewhere which sounds you know really intelligent but quake you this also sounds like a classic case of you know with great power comes great responsibility right yeah absolutely and we are talking about very very powerful technology you know what, what tim's described there is um is an AI that's talking about inferences, right? It's it's gathering all sorts of data that might not actually um, indicate um, nefarious activity, but points towards somebody that might be doing something. And making those inferences is really, really, um, in all honesty, to me, it's quite troubling because it's pointing towards um, someone who may or may not require surveillance in the hope that you'll catch out somebody who uh, who is doing something wrong. It feels like one step down from Minority Report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. And then, but here's the thing, right? It's 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 um the, the technology is powerful. Um, technology can't be uh, good or evil, right? It's the manner in which it's um in which it's used. And my uh, 
my skepticism about um, technology that kind of falls into the surveillance category is only derived from the manner in which it's been used previously. So I mentioned in the conversation that, you know, we, we've seen liberties been eroded by um, technologies of this nature. But that's not to take anything away from the absolutely amazing stuff that digital digital reasoning is doing, right? Um, they gave some incredible use cases. And then we come to this really interesting ethical dilemma where how how many awful things do we have to prevent in order to make a um, widespread adoption of a technology like this reasonable or feasible? It's, it's a really interesting tipping point that I think we, we're seeing repeating itself time and time again in different frontiers of tech. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of What Comes Next. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We're trying to get the word out about the show, so if you have time, please share it with friends or leave a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. If you have any questions about what we've discussed on this episode or would like to talk about your own technology on the podcast, then drop us an email. We're at wcn at grantree.co.uk. Thank you very much again. See you next time.